Listening to episode 26 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. 1932 was a landmark year for knockout scenes that introduced platinum blondes into a story. Constance Bennett's Garbo impression in What Price Hollywood showed women in the audience how much they could learn from movies and glossy magazines and how to apply it in their own advantage. She rehearses for a big love scene long before she faces the camera in a screen test. We see her briefly, but when viewers hear Jean Harlow speak in The Beast of the City, she's in a police lineup, wearing dark circles as a badge of honor from regular nocturnal hours. She holds her ground with hands on hips as though she were planting a flag. She over-enunciates, are you referring to me, as a way to punctuate her seething anger. When Harlow snarls that she's a stenographer, the books close on that topic. Let a man dare say otherwise. In the opening scene of Virtue, Carol Lombard sneers at the the detective who puts her on a train after a judge decreed she must leave Manhattan or serve a custodial sentence for solicitation. With her soft platinum locks tucked into a smart cloche hat, wearing a crepe de chine blouse, skirt, and T-strap Mary Janes that accentuate legs to die for, Carol tells the man of the law that she'll watch her diet, see a dentist, keep her nose clean, and pray for him every night, pray that he'll break a couple of legs. Greta Garbo has one of her most delicious introductory scenes in As You Desire Me. We don't see her while she croons a number on stage. The picture builds our anticipation by showcasing all the men in the audience reacting to her. We don't see her until she's backstage when she barks orders for more champagne. She sports a schoolboy haircut in platinum blonde. All in black, Garbo wears a high-funneled pop collar and ultra-slim trousers like she just played Hamlet. Half drunk, she demands more and more champagne and pushes away a retinue of admirers with a throwaway line, you're sweet but such a fool. You could insert that line in any one of her pictures and it would fit. Then there's Marlena Dietrich in Blonde Venus, leading a chorus line of African-American women in candy floss afros singing hot voodoo. That one's pure TNT. All these many years later, and you can't fail but gasp when she takes off the gorilla head and reveals a glamour queen. But the one that outshines them all is Mae West in Night After Night. Not only is her introductory scene flawless, it's also the first time she ever appeared on screen. She owns it from the start. Not for a moment does she allow her star power to waver. Mae's introduction scene is three separate set pieces. We hear her before we see her, a tremendous buildup that always stokes viewers' anticipation that we are about to meet a star. The camera stays locked on the backs of three men. May stands in front of them brushing them off as though they were flies in the ointment. May West always made men an afterthought in a picture, just another accessory for her to showcase a lusty camp persona. When we see her, finally, she whispers an aside to the doorman not to let them in or they'll wreck the joint for joint. 
She's grand in manner and appearances, but uses a tough Brooklyn accent that anchors her firmly in the land of working men and women. She's no Park Avenue dame. May swans over to the hat check stand and makes small talk. The girl behind the counter pops her eyes at the array of diamond bracelets. My goodness, what beautiful diamonds, the girl exclaims. Goodness had nothing to do with it, dearie, quips May. Roscoe Carnes rushes over to attempt a stall tactic with May so that she doesn't interrupt George Raff's date with a society dame. The kind of buildup we get is that her character, Maudie, spells trouble. By the reaction from men, trepidation and fear from Carnes and Raft, viewers expect a holy show from the dame dripping diamonds once she sees Raft with another woman. Except that's not at all what occurs. May has a surprise in store. With the camera pulled far back behind the table, where Raft sits with Constance Cummings, also Platinum Blonde, and Alison Skipworth, viewers take the full measure of Mae West's walk as she approaches the table. I've watched it dozens of times, over and over. In Edith Head's Hollywood, she talked about dressing May for her second picture, She Done Him Wrong, when Travis Banton, who had dressed May for this picture, was away on his annual trip to Europe. She wore eight-inch platforms in the period picture with Cary Grant. Let's assume they were the same height or thereabouts for night after night. Her step is as light as if she were bouncing on rolls of cotton. At the same time, with one hand on hip, her gait is as fast and sure-footed as one of the show ponies she liked to gamble on. Put me in four-inch heels, and I lurch around like Boris Karloff as the creature in Frankenstein. I have no idea how many hours of practice it takes to be that graceful or what amounts to stilts. After May's character, Maudie Triplett, greets Joe Antone, the speakeasy owner that George Raff plays, she asks, who's the dames? Maudie's there for fun, not trouble. She's such a dynamo that she has no reason to object to another woman or look at them as competition. Wynne Gibson, who plays Iris Dawn, the woman that is currently seeing Joe Antone, contrasts with Maudie's supreme confidence. Iris is jealous and threatened by the rich girl, but not Maudie. Grousing for a chair to join the table, Maudie wants to join the company and imbibe a big glass of bubbles. Everyone at the table moves like a 78 RPM record, slow and dull. How long does it take them to make limp comments about an international comment nobody cares about? It's excruciating. By contrast, May is modern, sharp, fast, like 33 RPM. You need only look at the other actors at the table to evaluate her effect. Constance Cummings is positively panting. You can see her chest fall and rise so quickly, like she's short of breath just watching May. Alison Skipworth second-guesses her Lady Mary voice and bearing. She would trade every ounce of Victorian propriety for a sprinkling of May's sass mouth. And George Raft? He's a deer in headlights, frozen and terrified that this, his first starring role, has been stolen from under his lovely profile. Her co-star, George Raft, shrewdly observed that May stole everything but the cameras. She tucks away the picture like a $1,000 bill in her snowy decolletage. George Raft was smart, though, and he didn't try to upstage May. 
You could no more resist or overpower Mae West than you could a tornado in your midst. At one point, as the scene winds up, Mae pulls George toward her and says, Crawl to me, baby, crawl to me. If I were to record the gospel of Sassmouth Dames chapter and verse, there would be an entire book called Crawl to Me, Baby, that would be the equivalent of the Sermon on the Mount. Maudie Triplett is the original good time girl. The body tales that she tells about tearing up jerts with raft are designed to make the table one of intimates. There's not one trace of jealousy, bitterness, or competition from her banter. Why would she have to? Maudie seems as though she has never suffered a moment's self-doubt in her life. She's not the type to lose the plot over some fella. Maudie especially takes to Miss Mabel Jellyman, the spinster schoolteacher that Allison Skipworth plays. Most women would ignore an older woman at a table, but Maudie senses a co-conspirator in hijinks. Mabel's there to class up George Raft. She has no conversation because her life is dreary and dull. But Maudie sees the frustration and inhibition within the older woman and makes it her business to see that she has a night on the lash. They become fast friends as the champagne flows. Mabel asks Maudie if she believes in love at first sight. May replies, I don't know, but it saves an awful lot of time. Going further, the tutor wants to know if Maudie thinks she can change her unfulfilling life. Maudie, do you really think I could get rid of my inhibitions? Why, sure, I got an old trunk you can put them in. Mabel then echoes Maudie's catch-all, ha-cha. Later, on the morning after, we see them in bed together, with Maudie generously playing nursemaid for Mabel's unfamiliar hangover. She fills an ice pack for Mabel to soothe an eye-scalding morning after. She offers more than that and hair of the dog. Maudie offers a lifeline, a route out of school marmism. She invites Mabel into her business. Flustered at a loss, she flounders with delivering a polite response. Mabel tosses off a speech about women like her having been instrumental throughout history and protecting proper women and such. Maudie's eyebrows make a beeline for her platinum crown. Clearly, she's mistaken. She asks, what kind of business do you think I'm in? Kindly, though, she spares the older woman further distress. Maudie tells her that she owns a chain of beauty parlors, the Institute of Butte. Then she tosses off the job offer, a hostess in her new salon in Manhattan. Stick with me, dearie. I'll make you a platinum blonde yet. In a slip with nothing underneath, as was the norm in pre-code Hollywood and their penchant for lingerie, Mae West is all brick house, as zaftic as any bombshell, and she is 39 years old. Each time a man in the media, and there have been many, has remarked that she was oversized, too old, or not pretty enough, I want to scream blue murder. Her physique in Night After Night is sculpted and athletic. It bears evidence of the weightlifting regimen that she picked up from her father as a child and endorsed. It's such a treat here to see her in modern clothes instead of trussed up in the period clothes that became her trademark and she done him wrong. Mae West cornered the market on Sassmouth Dame Savoir Faire because she discovered the real secret was to write your own material. No one in Hollywood is more quotable than Mae West. She was always writing. 
She continually built up files of quips, sketches, and plots that embedded and expanded her persona. Mae West was self-contained on screen as she was in her personal life. She lived for her work and the independence it brought. Mae West embodies the sum total of every aspirant sassmouth dame. The swagger, the bounce, the hip switch, the rapid-fire throwaway, the husky voice. After a brief marriage to Frank Wallace when she was a teenager, she carried her marital status like an inoculation against the possibility of doing something stupid while in the throes of passion. Her invisible husband kept her safe from other men. Well known for her double entendres and slide jokes about sex, she was also an astute chronicle of how the system was rigged against women and how much it behooved every sassmouth dame to protect her interests and independence. She told Charlotte Chandler, My first thought was, women need a bill of rights, and then I thought, no, what women need is a bill of wrongs. When I was a girl, I understood right away that there was this double standard for men and women, not just in sex, but in everything. A man's world was one of freedom, a woman's one of limitations. I believe in a single standard for men and women. She went on to say, When a man was courting me, he'd want to put a diamond ring on my finger, and as soon as he thought he had me, he wanted to put an apron around my waist. Before she ever set foot in Hollywood, she had decades of experience on the stage. She had been a performer since she was five years old, and even as a child, marked herself out as a true original. May as a child declined to pick up the coins enthusiastic audience members threw on stage, as was the custom. She had some men do that for her like she did many other chores in her life. They ruined the shape of their hats and the bargain from the weight of all the coins. She wrote and starred in a string of Broadway hits, including Drag, Sex, and Diamond Lil. When her show Sex was rated, and I might add in its 42nd week on Broadway, May was hauled into court and told that she would have to pay $500 in fine for the objectionable content or else spend 10 days in jail. She took the 10 days as a matter of principle, and what she saw there, women who were completely bereft in the world, stayed with her for life. The experience reinforced her sense that women had it tougher than men, and so they had to protect themselves by opting out of marriage and motherhood. May's career was her husband, her child, her reason for living. She knew that most women never had the luxury to make the choices she did. When May signed with Paramount, she did it very much on her own terms. In her mind, they were lucky to have her. May refused a long-term contract and insisted on a trial basis. She also told them to find her a place to live close to the studio. She called her flat in Ravensbrook her home for the rest of her life. The studio had decorated it in her preference of all white with gold accents. It remained intact for as long as she lived. May always said that when you find a style that works for you, don't change it. That remained true for her persona, her wardrobe, and decor. She recalled to Charlotte Chandler, I didn't go to Hollywood Humble, and I had my car fare home. Three months went by in Hollywood without a script. Despite being told that she should just look at it as a free vacation, May said she didn't have time to waste. You could always get back money, she said, but not time. Time was something you could not replace. 
Finally, she gave them an ultimatum. When the script appeared, she found it was lousy. In her memoir, Goodness Had Nothing to Do With It, she sounds disgusted when the 100-page bound copy arrived labeled First Rough Draft printed on the cover. What were they doing over there wasting her time? She told Paramount that either she would rewrite the script or she would be on the next train. They consented but only permitted May to revise her own part. The part of Maudie was smaller than she had been led to believe, but she felt it was enough to achieve her goal and make a big impression with a large national audience. She made $5,000 a week before she even stepped in front of a camera or so much as taken a screen test. Let's put that in context. Allison Skipworth, who plays the delightful Mabel Jellyman, was paid $500 a week. George Raft, the star of the picture, only made 200 a week on his contract with Paramount. By the time Mae West arrived on set, she was ready to start a full-blown affair with the film's leading man. She recalled in an interview with Charlotte Chandler that they were so mutually aroused that they were happy enough to duck into the nearest broom closet. Mae West and George Raft had much in common. Both were teetotal, lifelong abstainers from alcoholic beverages. They preferred to unwind with sex and bets at the racetrack. There was also her diamond collection for comfort. When George Raft was cast in the picture, he suggested to producers that they should put Mae West in the role of his ex-girlfriend Maudie, rather than the cabaret hostess Texas Guinan that they had planned to sign. May and George had moved in the same circles in New York. She knew him from when he was a bouncer for Tex Guinan, and then when he was a bagman transferring receipts for Owen E. Madden, one of the biggest racketeers in New York City. Originally born in the UK and Leeds, Owen E. Madden was known for his impeccable style and his ruthless tactics. He was a leading bootlegger who promoted prize fighters and was part owner of the Cotton Club, so they had him in common. Madden was essentially a father figure to George Raft, and Mae West's fling with Madden had been well-publicized in New York tabloids. Both May and George had problems with the director, Archie Mayo. In the undershirt scene, my favorite with George in the picture, Mayo yelled at him in front of the entire crew, just pick up the shirt, you goddamn son of a bitch. Stone Wallace, in his biography of George Raft, reports that George did not respond to the director's violent outburst in the moment. But early the next day, when they were alone on set, George threatened to punch his lights out if he ever abused him publicly like that again. May tangled with Archie over how he shot her biggest line in the picture. At the end of her entrance, after she drops that great line about goodness has nothing to do with it, to the hat check girl. May wanted the camera to follow her up the stairs into the nightclub. She felt it was the correct theatrical emphasis on her line. She was disappointed to learn that it didn't make it into the final print. Archie used his cut, which cut away from May after she delivered the line. When the film premiered, May suddenly refused to go and see herself. She feared that her performance might not match her expectations and that it would cause her to pack bags and board the next train. Instead, she went to see another picture that evening. May did what she always did, immerse herself in work on the next production, a revised version of her Broadway hit Diamond Lil, which became She Done Him Wrong. 
Night after night was a huge hit, a sensation. Mae West imitations sprang up everywhere. She had an incredible influence on what other women did on screen and off. There was a tremendous demand on additional Mae West pictures. Nearly single-handedly, Mae West pictures moved Paramount Studios from the red to the black and saved them from bankruptcy. Mae West's first picture stands out all these years later, and even apart from her other films, because she has no love interest. George Raff's Joe Antone is her ex-lover. Instead of spending her time on men, she's able to enjoy the company of a woman. From her time as a playwright, May kept the action between herself and male characters. It's a shame that she didn't explore the dramatic possibilities among women. And she seemed a tad confused in the interview with Charlotte Chandler why women would even want to see her productions. She said women told her it was to keep their men happy. It's sad if she couldn't tell that women love to see her boss men around and have her way with them. Also, it's worth noting that George Raff turns in a great performance as the role of a gangster who wants to be a gentleman. I never tire of his scene where he complains about the monogram on his bespoke silk undershirts that he ordered for $15 a piece. Roscoe Carnes points out that the last time the monogram was too big and now it's too small. He doesn't call his former prize fighter boss Goldilocks, but it's out there. Raft, as Joe Antone says reasonably, I found out the big ones was bad taste. I'm all for a picture that shows how men attempt to acquire style. You can watch Night After Night at ffilms.org slash night dash after dash night dash 1932. I'll close the episode with an excerpt from Mae West's gripping autobiography, Goodness Had Nothing to Do With It. Archie Mayo grew on me as a character. He was an excellent picture director, but alas, he had no background of real theater. He had learned his craft, picture direction, as a film editor in the cutting room. A very practical training school for any aspiring movie director, Miss West, he said. I'm sure it is, Archie. It teaches camera angles, scene composition, continuity, and movement. But does it teach a feeling for theater or creative direction? Oh, them things. A director either has or hasn't got it to begin with. You're in good hands, Mae West. I've heard that before. Archie Mayo was ball-bearing shaped, a bundle of energy and bounce. He had a Hollywood sense of humor and loved gags, like the hot foot, the pulled-back chair, the lace panties in a husband's pocket, and the knobs removed from a bathroom door. It was better than a box office hit. He was amusing to work with, but not at first. Unfortunately, he said, I have never seen you before, and I don't know anything about your technique, how you work. The only thing I know is that you are a Broadway legitimate stage star who has never made a picture. You'll find I learn quickly, real quickly. I watched them shooting studio scenes. I noticed that the actors didn't know their lines. The director didn't seem to be sure of what he was doing. They would shoot a scene over and over one expensive take after another. The director would then get some ideas by seeing the mistakes the actors were making. That is extremely expensive. That's where all the money's going, I I said to Jim, in picture production. In time wasted, film wasted, guessing and second guessing. A picture costs thousands of dollars a day to shoot. 
May, it's not real money to them. It melts like snowflakes. You know nothing is real here. Archie Mayo read my script with all the changes and new laugh lines. He asked, How do you know these lines are going to be funny, Miss West? I know audiences. I know what they laugh at, and I know what they expect from me. Broadway audiences, sure. Now you're going to have motion picture audiences. There isn't much difference in people, Archie. They have eyes and ears. They all laugh at the same things if they are funny. I'm not laughing. You're no customer. You're in for free. First scene tomorrow. On the first day's shooting, I got into difficulties with a director over film footage. After my entrance, I had a line I knew would be a sensational laugh. I had to protect the line with film footage. Trouble came after my arrival in George Raft's swank speakeasy and gambling house. On set, that is. I wanted the camera to follow me when I spoke the line while I walked away from the, the character to whom I had spoken and started up a long staircase. Cut. Why the long walk, Miss West? I'm giving the line a chance to milk the laughs. And suppose there are no laughs. Just keep the action on me. I'll give you laughs. I had no intention of letting the camera cut away from me to something else the moment I delivered one of the big laugh lines. There needs to be that fraction of time, Archie, for an audience to hear the line, get its meaning, and start laughing. Otherwise, the biggest laugh line in the world would be killed the instant it's delivered. Archie said, we know our stuff. It's what you do after a funny line that helps the laugh. You can cut the laugh off instantaneously. Yes, but darling, pictures are different from the stage. You can't wait for laughs. The old camera keeps on rolling. And does it cost money? I don't have to wait for laughs. I just sort of roll with the punch. The punchline. When I walk up those stairs, that's the roll. Archie couldn't see it. All work had stopped. People gathered. A studio crisis was on. I was going to get to the top of those stairs. Serious faces waited expressionless, not taking sides till someone big was on the ground. A hollow square of yes-men arrived and exposed Emmanuel Cohen, executive vice president of Paramount in charge of production, also Bill LeBaron, the producer. I explained our hassle to both of them. The laugh can be built into a yell if it's done as I suggest. Emmanuel Cohen said, look, Archie, Miss West must know what she's doing. She is the greatest box office in the legitimate theater. Any dope knows that. She may be great in the legitimate theaters, but this is motion pictures, Mr. Cohen. I am aware of what we make here. She doesn't know motion picture technique. Look, Archie, Emmanuel Cohen answered, you shoot it exactly like Miss West wants. After the preview, if it isn't right, we can cut it out. Can I do more? The scene was shot my way, and the top brass looked at the rushes. Rushes are hurry-up prints made of film shot one day and viewed in the projection room the next morning. And my wisecrack drew a howl of glee and a choking on long cigars when I took my long walk. There, see what I mean, Archie said? A walk for what? You mean, Archie, what a walk. Leave it in. Archie Mayo said, what a walk. We'll use that line in the ad. Let's see it again. Again on film, I walked into George Raff's fashionable clip joint, and the coat check room girl took one look at all the diamonds I was wearing and exclaimed, Goodness, what beautiful diamonds. Goodness had nothing to do with it, dearie, I replied, and moved away and up the stairs again into motion picture history. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Why not leave a review on iTunes if you're enjoying the podcast? Join me next time for episode 27 on Myrna Loy and Man Proof from 1938.
Thanks very much.